Welcome to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you social work in times of COVID-19. Oh, what is this, your first pandemic? <laughs> Noob. <laughs> oh, oh. Girl, that's weird. <laughs> Stay with us. So today we're talking about how does the profession that focuses on human interactions and community engagement continue thriving during a pandemic, which that's a heavy question, right? Very heavy question. And I feel that now we are what in week seven? Yeah, we've been at home quarantine. Amelda and I both traveled, Mm -hmm. um, you know, right at the beginning of this. So have been quarantined for you know, going on several months now. Yeah. But, and I think by the time this episode goes live, probably will be a few more weeks, a couple more weeks. So we're hopeful. So how are things going at the end of May for all of you? Just kidding. (laughs) From the end of April here. Um, How are things going with you, Jennifer? Is your, your work has been impacted, your life, you know, like everyone else, but how are things going with you? It's been a big change and a small change in a lot of ways. Like I think in many ways, us as social workers are well prepared for this. You know, we have always looked at, you know, the bigger picture. We've always practiced person and environment. We've looked at people directly, you know, bigger systems and then communities. So for me, um, I work a couple jobs and Imelda shares, you know, one of those with me. So the transition, you know, to teaching on Zoom and then with my other jobs, you know, whether it be the hospital, you know, obviously lots of changes in an inpatient medical hospital right now, lots of changes with, you know, practicing psychotherapy in these times, um, which we'll unpack in a bit, but definitely working on adjusting and grieving and working through a pandemic in real time. Yeah. And it's um, something that we were talking off the air before we started recording is this buzz that has been going on on social media. Like you guys have probably seen similar posts saying, you know, if you don't come out of this pandemic with a new business, a new skill or new hobby or more knowledge um, is because you lack discipline, not time. And uh, bologna sandwich as a licensed therapist, bologna sandwich. (laughs) It makes me so mad because no, like this is a crisis that we are all going through. And I feel like it's important to to start this conversation by saying that however you have been dealing with the changes and the adjusting and grieving and whatnot, whatever you've been doing to cope, it's okay. For some people, it might look like exercising at home and writing uh, in their journal and picking up a new hobby, deep cleaning their house, organizing their closets. And that's fine if that's what brings you joy and that what makes your day look a little bit more in order, by all means, go for it. But if in a regular day, all you could do is get out of bed and shower, that's a win too. Total win, even if you just baby wipe. <laughs> so speaking of, Amelda, how how have things changed for you? How are you coping? Um... 
you know, some days are better than others. Um, I feel like we have all been in this like roller coaster, uh, not only because things have changed at a personal level, working from home, uh, not able to see friends and family. I'm, I'm a super extrovert. So I miss my interaction with humans and just, you know, sitting and having a drink with a friend, but also adjusting to working from home. I used to think all the time, I used to be so jealous of people who were able to work from home all the time. I was like, oh, I wish I could do that. And now that I'm doing it, I'm like, um, I don't, I don't know if I, if I a hundred percent like this. Um, so I think I've been getting better at adjusting to make that boundary between work and, and home. Um, as you mentioned, teaching online too, supporting a lot of students whose internships have had to transition from being in person to doing it remotely. So I've been doing a lot of coaching over the phone with with um, social work students and in my professional job, things have changed dramatically too. So we are, we're hanging in there, but I feel that just being connected with how you're feeling day by day, it's important. And sometimes some days are better than others. And, you know, and then and then when you get in all this different news and things change very quickly from day to day. So I'm trying to limit my the amount of news that I consume in a day as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think reflecting on what skills and tools you have in your toolbox, you know, a lot of times we talk with clients about building a toolbox and identifying some of that resiliency. So on days when things feel out of control, what kind of things help you feel in control? Is it organizing a closet? Now I I can't master a pandemic, but I can master a closet Mm -hmm. or my body is telling me that I need to be very gentle with it and take good care of it. And if Sharon asks me to do Zoom yoga one more time, like I'm going to come through the computer. Um, Damn Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Because today I just need a donut. Maybe I need a dozen donuts. You know, we unpack a little bit about what different kinds of self-care is. A lot of us are in that soothing stage and that's okay. Things change on a day-to-day basis, but taking that time to reflect on what works for you and in what situations that you have that whole toolbox, you know, to put from and you don't put all your eggs and I'm going to do Zoom yoga and I'm going to feel fine. You probably won't. It's yoga. I'm more of the Zoom happy hour type of person. Exactly. Yeah, that has worked for me. (laughs) Um, So Jennifer, you have done telehealth for some time now, even before this whole thing started. Um, I know that more and more, not only social workers, but doctors and nurses and anyone who provides um, one-on-one services has transitioned to telehealth, which has its pros and cons. So yeah, it definitely does. And yeah, like Imelda said, I feel I, and I hope most of my staff felt you know, pretty well prepared. We were all already working from home. We had been doing telehealth, you know, some of us for years. So as someone who's been doing it for a while, um, some things to maybe get on the bandwagon about here. Um, 
finding a platform that works and is HIPAA compliant. One thing that I've noticed that has come out of a lot of states, which is awesome, is a lot of relaxed rules around things. You know, as long as you're providing telehealth in good faith, keep doing it, you know, or you don't have to apply for a specific modifier code through some insurance companies, you know, some states even allowing you to practice there without a license in that state or to see clients who maybe you were originally seeing in your state to continue to see them when they had to, you know, go be with family or because they got stuck somewhere while traveling. But my advice is to always, you know, edge on the side of caution and to be, you know, as close to optimal as you can be. So making sure that your platforms are HIPAA compliant and then noticing what's starting to bother you and to talk with other folks on how to solve it. Um, a lot of times, you know, we do a lot of telephonic therapy and a lot of therapists will be like, you know, I wish I could see them. You know, I wish I could see their facial expressions. I wish I could see if they were crying. Um, I wish I could see if they're really participating. You know, what if they're trying to also do the dishes very quietly while they do therapy? Or what if they're, you know, walking their dog? Or what if they're slugging bottles of wine? So having that, you know, being able to discern what's going to be possible at your agency, but then making sure that you're being compliant and noticing and talking about, you know, ways that you've gotten around that or gotten through it. I ask a lot of clarifying questions. The use of therapeutic silence and technology often gets awkward. You're like, are they frozen? Are they listening? Did the call drop? <laughs> um, so taking that time to ask, you know, I didn't hear you talk for a moment. How did that feel for you? Or can you tell me a little bit more about how you're feeling? Or often when clients in situation are in your situation, they cry. How is this landing for you? So asking those questions about emotions has been really helpful. And setting up procedures for how are we going to email securely? Can I, we would normally do this worksheet together in session today. Can I email it to you before? You know, do you have access to a printer? Can you understand Doxy or Zoom or FaceTime or Skype or whatever platform you end up using uh, well enough to be able to participate in a screen share? Did you feel that being able to see them face to well, not face to face, but through the screen doing their Zoom or FaceTime or whatnot, it's um, more beneficial than doing it over the phone? Like, what has been your experience? One yeah. versus the other? For some people, I think it really depends on population and then barriers. You know, there are some people who could only, you know, participate in therapy or case management on their drive home. So Zoom was never going to be an option. Um, there are some people, you know, who felt more comfortable if they could ball their eyes out and their therapist couldn't see them or they could, you know, snuggle their cat or, you know, if they were so depressed, they couldn't get out of bed and grab their computer, but they could at least reach over and pick up the phone. So for some people, telephone is going to be their way. There are certain populations that I highly recommend doing the video therapy with. Um, for most of my staff, we use it for couples. Mm. It's frankly even just a little bit off to have two people over the phone. You don't know if they're jabbing each other or like muting the other person. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of what you're working on is communication, which that includes nonverbal. Exactly. So I need to see if Mr. Smith is rolling his eyes when Julie is pouring her heart out about her marriage. Oh, poor Julie. Um, and kiddos too. You know, a lot of what we do is play mm. and therapeutic play. So to see, you know, 
show me your Legos, you know, or like, let's draw a picture of your family as a zoo, or like, let's tell a story together or read a favorite book or play Uno. Um, A lot of those things are more impactful as well as, you know, when we talk about those emotional responses, you know, the emotional intelligence of a child is different than that of adult. They may not be able to articulate how they're feeling. And that's where a lot of us as therapists step in and give them that language and those words, which is harder to do when we can't see them. Um, So knowing what's going to be possible and maybe setting those boundaries, you know, maybe I can't take on new couples that I don't know, because I know I, I know Jean's eye roll. Uh, without even seeing her. I know when she's quiet, she's rolling her eyes at me. And, you know, she's thinking about how her mother's going to tell her that I'm a quack. Um, (laughs) But if you're a new client, I might not know that. So understanding, you know, who you can take on right now, what's going to be optimal. And then talking with other folks, you know, we learn a lot from each other. But I would say overall, Make sure you're in compliance and over compliance with documentation and HIPAA. And once you are, embrace it, but also hold that feedback sacred and understand that some people are never going to want to leave this model and some people are not comfortable switching to it and holding space for both of those populations and knowing folks in your network who can accommodate them. If you're not willing to do telehealth, who in your circle is, if you have you know, folks who are not willing to participate, who is someone who's still seeing people in person. So making sure that your circle is big enough to accommodate all your clients as they start to transition. But what a great time to participate um, and to get your agency on board with more options that allow you to have and lower barriers for clients, right? They don't need childcare. They don't need parking. They don't need transportation. They don't need to put on, you know, clean clothes even to participate in therapy. I think this, this opens up not only a lot of resources and, and ways to connect for clients, but I think all this shift, this sudden shift for a lot of agencies and, and organizations to have to transition to online work so quickly it's going to impact the way they do things in the long term, even when things, quote unquote, go back to normal or we go back to seeing each other and being around each other more often. Uh, I think some of these practices that have been implemented during these times will continue, you know, will become part of the services that the agency provides. So I feel like this changes have in some way have a silver lining that a lot of agencies and service providers and mental health professionals are implementing to meet the needs of their clients. And exciting for clients. And I think also exciting for staff, right? Like for a lot of people working from home, you know, is or was, or is at least partially part of the dream, right? Mm -hmm. To have that flexibility, you know, to throw in a load of laundry, between meetings or to make that healthy breakfast because you're not spending your time commuting, but to make sure that you, you know, whether that be you as an individual who's working, you, if you're a manager, um, coworker, trainer, you know, what were some of the things that you were doing in person as part of a normal day and how do you make it more normal? 
um, we started Slack channels so that, you know, different case managers can message each other. And, you know, we would turn around and share memes if we were in the office. So like, (laughs) have you, have you found a place with your coworkers, you know, to share memes and to laugh about stuff and to vent. So to create that kind of normal office culture and water cooler stuff, and also to support staff, you know, this is a huge transition for a lot of them. You know, are you asking, how are you asking your manager to support you? Or if you are a manager, how are you supporting your staff in a way that's additional? You know, maybe you had an open door policy. What does your open door policy look like when you work from home? Mm-hmm. Can staff text you at six o'clock on a Friday or, you know, 2 a.m. on a Sunday? You know, can they call you to cry? What is your open door policy look like now that you're remote? And, you know, how much if they were being given, you know, time to be joyful around the lunch table, you know, how do you continue to hold that sacred when folks work from home? Exactly. Yeah. How, how did you find on a more on a, on a personal level, how do you make it work to create that boundary between having your workstation at home and having your daily life, uh, you know, transitioning from one to the other, especially when you do therapy and you work with clients, you know, like I think it's, it will be very tempting to, if there's a client or or even a a staff member that contacts you after hours, you're like, okay, well, I can, I can just go in really quick and get this done. But I think that's also part of setting those boundaries for yourself. Yeah. And maybe this comes from my time I spent in compliance, but, you know, I think, I think a lot about HIPAA, HIPAA and I, HIPAA is always in my brain. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the rules for HIPAA is two locks. So any client data I got to keep behind two locks. So for me, that's my computer is locked and then also the door to my office locks. So I leave everything in that office, you know, whether that be work phone calls, client cases, you know, the work on my laptop. Um, and if I need to use my laptop for something else, I don't even mess around. I restart it. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's not like, oh, I'll just leave this temp for later yeah. because it will it will bother me. And I'll be like, ah, oh, you know, I should look back at that note or make sure that those records get faxed or I should follow up on this. Um, but having those clear boundaries and kind of having a ritual to it. Right. Yes. You know, something that helps you kind of break the spell of constantly working. So knowing where it is for me, it's, I have the privilege of having a separate space. A lot of people don't Mm -hmm. have that privilege. You know, I wasn't expecting, and it's not a part of our normal life to have my husband work from home, but suddenly here he was on my dining room table in my space. Um, (laughs) but that also didn't give him the space at the end of the day. He had to walk by his workstation constantly. Um, so what does it look like to give yourself even just a little area that's just for work or on the flip side, just an area that's for non-work stuff? Exactly. Even changing the space, even if it's in the same room, um, that has been my experience. I live in an apartment and so we don't have a lot of space and my work area is my dining table. And the first week I was like, okay, well, maybe I can try the kitchen. I can try the dining table. I can try the couch um, until I I was like, no, I have to pick a spot. This is where I work. And this is part of my routine of every day. And when I'm not working, I turn off the lights of the dining room or the, you know, above the dining table, turn off my computer and then I transition to the couch to watch some TV or to the kitchen to make dinner. But the act of moving 
away from the computer symbolizes that transition to something else. Yes. And setting that boundary, not cheating yourself on it, right? Like it's very tempting to be like, I'll just watch TV at lunch. But if mm-hmm. that's like your work spell breaking ritual, then to like, I, I deny myself the couch on breaks because I know once I sit down and get comfortable, I'm going to want to stay yep. and I'm going to, I'm not going to bring my whole self back into the office. I'm going to be dreaming of the couch. I take my dog out for a 15 minute walk during my break. And then, cause that's what I we usually do at the office, not necessarily go for a walk, but I will get up, get up from my desk and go to a coworker's office and talk about our, you know, the latest episode of a uh, true crime podcast that we were listening and just spend some time talking about something different. So for me, like a good break is just making that distinction of just stepping away from my workspace, but not going into my recreation space, which is the couch or the TV or, you know, so it just it has been an adjustment, but it's, I think like week after week or day by day, it's, it's, it gets a little bit better. Yeah. I think a lot of us are kind of in that spot where we're adjusting finally or feeling some sort of, you know, while we're all in the midst of uncertainty, having a little bit more of that relief in the routine, right? Like we're starting to build a routine. Maybe it's not perfect yet. You're starting to notice things that are and are not working for you, but creating that pattern and setting those boundaries and, you know, deciding what you can't let go of and deciding what you're willing to let go of as you be gentle with yourself throughout this, you know, transition and global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about working from home, you know, having the privilege of having a a job, a position that allows you to work from home there. Let's not forget all the social workers and service providers who are not able to work from home, who work and um, hospitals or who work in different social service agencies that are essential and that they still need to come to work. They still need to have one-on-one interaction with people and they are being exposed to everything that's out there. So I think for, for those social workers who are still going in person and they have to come back to their families, that adds another layer of stress, I will think. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, so I'm also employed by a hospital here, a medical hospital that takes COVID patients. So making sure and to have those conversations with your employer, you know, just like you're being gentle with yourself, kind of those same gentle, but firm boundaries, you know, with your employer, what are you and are you not willing to do? And what do you need to keep yourself happy, healthy, and safe? So does that look like, you know, can you do things that are less in patients' rooms? You know, when you come home, does it look like, you know, now your shoes and your clothes go in the garage and you get right in the shower? Does it look like making sure that you have adequate personal protective equipment? And if your hospital or employer isn't able to provide that, you know, what can you be provided? You know, what are you allowed to do um, and how you are protecting yourself? And this is a good opportunity to have those conversations and to set those boundaries. And if it's something that you don't feel comfortable with, what accommodations are available? So um, at the hospital, you know, for most folks, there's going to be potentially the opportunity to take FMLA. 
you often you'll qualify that. So I think it's 1,250 hours. So pretty close to 1300 hours worked in the last 12 months. Um, then you qualified to take up to 12 weeks, you know, paid or not paid, unfortunately, at most positions, but worth clarifying with HR, um, time off from the position, which because this is an ever-changing thing, another conversation to have to your, with your employer, is this intermittent FMLA? Is it continuous? You know, does it go through the end? You know, when this is no longer a state or federal emergency, do you go back? But to have that conversation and to see if FMLA is an option, what our hospital chose to do uh, was to do more so ADA accommodations. So if you had any diagnosis that would, you know, preclude you to be more susceptible to the pandemic, then they made, you know, appropriate accommodations. So like, you know, folks with asthma um, don't go into COVID rooms, you know, unless there's certain staffing ratios or they have to be provided additional personal protective equipment or they have the chance to work from home now. So what does it look like in having those conversations with your employer? It's really hard to know unless you ask though, because everyone's trying to figure this out and kind of real time. So being gentle, but saying, you know, the ADA and FMLA are federal laws that exist. So it should impact all of you in the United States. And how are those being leveraged or not leveraged by your employer? And what rights do you have to have those leveraged during this time? And making sure that your employer also, if you're eligible for the federal coronavirus relief, so that two week, you know, and up to extending if you had kids home from school, if you were diagnosed with COVID, if someone that you provide dependent care was, was diagnosed with COVID, or if you needed to quarantine, quarantine by an order from a doctor. Um, so how does that law also impact you? So getting those answers from HR um, and advocating for those to be public to your peers too, right? So like if you have to go in, you know, while you need to protect yourself and social workers are well-trained advocates, you know, we're very investigative. Yeah. Um, but when we have that information to share it and to make that known amongst your peers to make sure that they can more easily you know, once we figure something out with one client, we're even better for the next one. Um, but to pass that same kind of gift and advocacy along to your peers or maybe people who don't feel comfortable to HR, but keeping that all in mind and, you know, being as safe as we can, but being, you know, gentle but firm in our boundaries for what we need. Yeah. And I think something to it's important to keep in mind is that managers are also trying to figure it out how to do things. And this is a, um, an experience that we have all been learning together. So sometimes you asking or suggesting to your supervisor or your manager, like, hey, is there a possibility that I can do my notes remotely if I have access to the system? That way I minimize the amount of time I spend in, at the clinic or the hospital or one-on-one -on -one in an environment where I might be exposed to something else. So, uh, or can I do my home visits and then do my notes remotely? And I don't have to come into the office just to make sure that I'm having that balance. And, you know, it might be that your supervisor has not thought about those options. So you presenting them to them will be a good learning opportunity for both of you because we are all trying to find ways to support each other during these times. And speaking of support, you know, our nonprofits and what that universe looks like for them continue to be funded looks very different. Amelda, I know you have gone through a lot of that change. Yes. Um, fundraising has been 
impacted tremendously the way we do things, the way we approach our fundraising efforts, the way we do our events or not do our events. Um, so as you know, I work for a national nonprofit um, and mo my my job is a, as development director is to coordinate efforts at the local level for fundraising for for that uh, national charity. So we had a big gala schedule coming up in two weeks. We have a big walk that we do in September that is now being considered to to just transition to a virtual walk. Um, and actually I'm very excited because we just got the green light to do a virtual gala in a couple of weeks. So this will be an interesting way to continue supporting the mission, continue engaging with our donors, but also making sure that everyone's staying safe and we're not putting anyone at risk. But I work for an organization that provides free cancer treatment for children. So something that I always keep in mind and, and remind our supporters is that, yeah, we have a pandemic, but childhood cancer doesn't stop. And the treatment that um, our patients are under continues and our mission continues. And we just have to find different ways to to make it work. So we have stopped communication via regular mail because also we don't want to increase the traffic of mail coming into people's homes. And so we have transitioned to just social media and email and also our messaging has changed. We stick to the mission of our organization, but we want to be mindful of how we're doing the ask how we are engaging our current donors and how we are asking for people to continue supporting us. We have to be mindful of people's struggles during this time. So even though we have uh, revenue goals that we have to continue meeting to continue our hospital running, there are a lot of people out there who have lost their jobs, whose partners have lost their jobs as well. So their income has been impacted in big ways. So it has been a big learning curve for everyone on messaging, on approaching our donors, on doing our events. And it has been very interesting. But I think I think this um, has also given the opportunity for our organization to reduce costs, even though the revenue that we receive from fundraising events has decreased. Also, our expenses have decreased because we are not traveling as much. We're not driving as much. We're not spending on big events and big gala and plates and, and meals and all of the things that come into account when you throw big events as thousands of dollars. So we're saving all that money. And I think we're all putting our thinking hats on how we do, how do we do a virtual walk? Uh, what would be the incentive for people to sign up for our walk um, when they don't necessarily be seeing each other? That's one of the things that brings people to walks and events like that is because they want to see each other and they want to take their picture and they want to share on social media to show that they support this organization and this mission and reminding people that you can still do that. You can still, you go on a virtual walk and you share on your social media and your fundraising page that you did your 5k today with your kids and your partner. And it has almost like the same effect. And we also 
are being reminding ourselves that uh, this might be a good time for people who who want to get engaged, want to get involved and a mission like ours, or, you know, it comes for any nonprofit. Some people are looking for something else to do besides looking at the news and looking at the number of cases and, you know, everything that's happened politically. So it might be a good time to engage new people in your organization. So we we're learning as we go, but it has been Definitely a bit learning curve for everyone in the nonprofit and fundraising world. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think as we talk here, that whole conversation on, you know, side hustles and hobbies, we're coming out of this with lots of skills. You know, if nothing else, we're coming out with the skill of how do we survive a pandemic and how do we adapt and how wonderfully strong and resilient a lot of us are. As a lot of us are either working from home or spending more time at home, uh, we kind of solicited and collected some ideas that have worked for folks. Some of these are a little more unique than others. And with anything, like with anything Imelda and I say, some of this may work for you and stick and feel really good. And some of this may be the exact opposite of what you need. And all of that's okay. For a lot of us, what the conclusions we arrived to came from trial and error and came from trying lots of things that maybe felt silly or didn't quite click and maybe eventually ended up being the favorite part of our day. (laughs) Yeah, like with anything that we say on this podcast, take what you need and get rid of the rest. Yes, yeet it into the sun. (laughs) Um, So some of the responses we got, you know, particularly around setting up your morning. um, So getting dressed in something other than pajamas. I think that's a, a big temptation for a lot of us is to just stay in those pajamas and to not change them even from day to day sometimes. (laughs) But to be mindful of that, one of my peers in management has a rule of no more than three days per week with an elastic waistband. Two days a week, she makes herself put real pants on, which helps those two days. You know, I can almost tell if it's a jeans day instead of a pajama day because she sounds more confident. (laughs) How funny. Um, Making sure, again, more morning stuff. So prioritizing um, time to have breakfast or if breakfast wasn't a normal part of your life to take advantage of that. You know, maybe you were always a protein bar in the, you know, traffic and maybe now there's less traffic in your area. So you have 10 more minutes, you know, to eat breakfast or to sit while you eat or to prepare something that feels really good for your body. And then to make sure your caffeine intake is normal if that's something that you normally do if you always stop at a coffee shop or if you get coffee from the break room if that's going to make a negative change in your life to be without it I know I personally am a much better person with caffeine in my system same um so to make sure that that's a priority and you know if it's something a lot of people will drink the whole thing on their commute um I worked with a manager who used to get two coffees one hot and one extra hot and she would drink the first one in the first half of her commute and then by the time (laughs) she was halfway through her commute her extra hot one would be regular hot and she'd finish the second one so she was two cups in every time we saw her yeah So it was important for her to do that. But lots of other things about setting up your day. Yeah. For me, something that has worked is getting up at the same time as I did before commuting. So even if I know that, oh, my commute is 10 seconds from my room to the dining table or my work area, um, I still wake up at the same time. And this was hard. This doesn't come easy. The first few days, I was like, 
I'm just going to sleep in a little bit more because, you know, I'm right here. And I think getting up at the same time as you did before and then taking a shower for me, going straight to to the bathroom and taking a shower, that follows the same routine that I had before. So that in my mind is like, yes, I'm getting ready to go to work, even if it's just the other room. And I start my pot of coffee and play with my dog a little bit. And then I transition into my workstation and start my day, uh, which was the same thing that I did when I was working at the office, minus the the commute in the car. But doing things like that, that uh, continuing the same routine that you had before helps a lot to keep that balance from day to day. Um, Something that also um, has been helpful is um, standing during calls or conference calls. I found myself uh, the first few days when I was working from home, like my back was really hurting because I was sitting for seven to eight hours, you know, just taking bathroom breaks. But, and it was before, not, not, not that before I was not sitting that long either, but I will get up and go get my lunch and go to my coworker's office or go to a meeting. And so my day was more mobile. I had more mobility during, during the day at the office. So something simple as like putting a Amazon box on your table or your workstation and putting your computer on top of it. There you go. You have a standing desk without paying all the money. And sometimes it feels a little weird to be working standing up. So you can set your timer for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just, you know, just let your your body um, stretch a little bit while you're still working. Yeah. And I think that physical activity is so important. I went from running around a hospital and would easily put in 10,000 steps a day because whoever built this hospital personally hated me um, (laughs) and my aversion to moving my body. Um, But going for walks and kind of scheduling those walks to give yourself something to look forward to, like, okay, you know, 12, 15, it's the same kind of stuff we tell clients all the time, like put the gym shoes by the door, pick out the outfit the night before, even if you only make it to the gym parking lot, like that's a win. You know, even if you only put on your shoes, you know, that's going to be, it's going to be a lot easier to make it to the end of the driveway and then to the stop sign or to the block, but giving yourself that vitamin D, you know, getting out of the house a little bit, you know, being safe while you do it. But giving yourself, you know, something to look forward to, you know, on top of that, like I always take my walks at three o'clock and at three o'clock, it's great because lots of people take their dogs out for a potty break. Lots of the kids are feeling cooped up. So you might see some more friendly faces in your neighborhood, but making sure that you are getting something that's moving your body, getting some sunshine and around having that boundary for break, also having a boundary around lunch. And having a boundary around closing your day. It's so easy since we're home for everything to run together. Um, And this goes to, you know, even if you're still doing essential work, you know, what kind of boundaries are you setting to make sure that you get out of the house, have regular meals, all the things that we need to be happy, healthy humans, whether we're going to work or whether we're at home. Yeah. And people who work from home with their kids, I... I don't know how they do it. I'm still mind blown. Constantly in awe. Yes. Of all of you. Uh, I have a few coworkers that they have school age children. And if I'm having a hard time, you know, 
staying focused on on my work and not getting distracted with things at home, I can I could not even imagine doing it with kids. So the good thing is that when you have a supportive team and you have a supportive uh supervisor and coworkers that they know that you have kids and then they know that you're struggling and, and managing so many things at a time at home. It helps other people to be more flexible with you and understand that, hey, sometimes you're in a call, your kid might pop into the picture and to the Zoom meeting. And instead of being a negative thing, everyone just waits and says hi, you know, and then he goes away. So just having that, that, you know, working relationship with your team and, 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 and you also being understanding of other people, you know, um, I think for me, you know, I don't, I don't have kids, so I, it's easier for me to just be focused at work and, and do my thing. But I completely understand that other people actually, they just need to work from 9.30 to 3.30 because that's all the energy they have to do their work in a day because at 3.30 the kids start getting hungry and kids finish their schoolwork that they get assigned. So now they have to shift gears and shift focus to attend to their needs of their family and that's okay. I feel that sometimes we we are really hard on ourselves and we think that we're going to be able to produce full eight hours of work every single day while we're at home. And sometimes the best that we can do is six. And that's when we are the most productive and it's okay. You know, it's okay to have a flexibility and um, something that our CEO told us that, you know, not working from home, that you can, um, if you need to do four sessions of two hours of work throughout the day, then go for it. If it's eight to 10 and then, 12 to 2 and you know so on if that is what works for you and with the schedule of your family then make it work you know just do whatever feels good for you and your schedule and your family and the people that you live with yeah and you know for those of you who may not have very flexible employers you know who you need to be sat in front of that screen from 7 a.m to 3 30 um to just communicate as much as you can mm-hmm. you know maybe we do need you on that 12 to 1 meeting even though that's a horrible time because that's you know when your toddler is fussy and you know that's when you need to prepare a snack and that's when you normally feed them lunch but to just communicate that I know I know when most of my employees kids naps I know when toddler gymnastics <laughs> is I know when volleyball carpool is, I know, you know, I know when swim lessons are, but I wouldn't, if my employees hadn't communicated or if I hadn't asked that, I also know when most of my employees like have that, that high energy time. So when they feel best, I have some folks that are really morning people and some folks that are really not morning people. So communicating that. And if you have the flexibility to block out your day, to know what you know about yourself and to apply it to your work. You know, if you hate mornings, don't schedule a client at 8 a.m. because you will hate that client even just a little bit. And we don't want to resent folks when we do really um, powerful and impactful work. Yeah. Managing your energy. I read a an article, I think it was like a TED Talk or an article somewhere recently that talked about how we are so trained on scheduling things and scheduling our time and managing our time, but we don't really give enough focus on managing your energy. So if you know that there's a task 
or a meeting or a conversation that is going to take a lot of your energy, that is going to drain you, try to schedule it in a time that is the most productive for you. When you, you know, like Jennifer said, if you're a morning person, then schedule those high alert activities for the morning and not from the evening or the afternoon. And if you can space them out, if you have a client that it's, it's challenging, don't schedule two challenging clients in the same day, try to space them out on different days. So, you know, you manage your energy the same way that you manage your time and your, and your schedule as much as possible. Yeah. And then more of that boundary setting, you know, that we were kind of talking about before, if you can have separate spaces, separate spaces is great. Um, I saw one um, coworker who was wiping down her desk at the end of the day and shutting her laptop. I mean, never a bad thing to be cleanly, especially during the time of a virus. But that was her rule. Like once it was clean, she couldn't touch it again because then she was going to contaminate it. So wiping down your desk, um, shutting the laptop, shutting the door. But then also being mindful, a lot of us, you know, we're seeing clients face to face, doing a lot of interacting, and now everything is through a screen. Um, so what does it look like to maybe manage your expectations or your other behavior around screen time if you're now consuming a full eight hour workday of screen and then also going right to the couch and going to the TV or going to the phone? You know, what does it look like to make that a little more human or a little more interactive or to just at least, you know, acknowledge it? If yes. you're OK spending 18 hours staring at a screen and that brings you joy. I have done it. Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely very guilty. Go for it. But if not, you know, just being mindful and then also giving yourself, you know, things around your workstation. Um, So things, you know, I have employees who have quotes on their wall, have pictures of their family, pictures of their kids, gratitude journals, bullet journals, fun markers, fun pens, little whiteboards, you know, things that you can bring into your space that give you joy while you're there. And then having those good boundaries to exit that space when you're done with it. Exactly. So, you know, as we have mentioned before, um, these are just suggestions and things that have worked for us and for some other uh, co-workers and colleagues. So take what you need and take what works for you. Your work environment right now during this pandemic might look very different from what we talked about. So just be mindful of uh, making sure that your immediate needs are being met. And I think one of the last um, advice that we can give or tips that we can give is to to just listen to your body. Mm-hmm. Um, drink water. You know, something as simple as drinking water and practicing breathing exercises throughout the day can have a big impact. Um, I know we we forget to do those sometimes. So making sure that you are taking care of your base, basic needs uh, will go a long way. You know, being hydrated, having a healthy meal. Not every meal should be healthy or, you know, Mel just staring at me because I just made Boston cream pie donuts yesterday. <laughs> you know, actually, I'm, I've been looking for to where they are and like she hasn't <laughs> offered one yet. So I, I don't know what she's playing. <laughs> but yeah, so little things like that and just, you know, bring it back to basics uh, to take care of your body uh, every day and just listen to what it needs. And sometimes it might be a nap during lunchtime and that's OK. 
Yeah. And sometimes you can social work yourself. You know, what advice would I give a client who is in my same situation? Um, And sometimes I hate therapizing myself. I'm like, uh uh-uh, like I just need to cry. I just need to be miserable for a minute. Or I just need to vent. Tiger King. Yes. (laughs) But all of it's okay. We're all learning together, but wanted to share some of our our insight and things that we found work for us and our folks. But as always, we wish you the best. We're sending you joy. Yes, we are hoping that all of you are coping the best way that you can. And we're hoping that all of you are staying healthy and safe and sane. And don't forget to wash your hands. Don't touch your face. And listen to our podcast. And listen to our podcast and support us. Um, We're hoping to continue checking in with you through our social media outlets at social workers break room on instagram and facebook and we're here for you and we're all in this together <laughs> that's probably copyrighted i can't see yeah you probably should <laughs> disney don't take my podcast <laughs>